As you're turning your Bibles to John chapter 9 and turning your eyes to Christ, I was informed that we do not need to move the chairs at the end, so you're off the hook. You can just leave your chair right where it is. John chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 13 this morning. John 9 has been a really fun passage to study in that it is, I actually thought about last week taking the whole chapter because it's just this man's story, right? I mean, that's all that happens in this chapter. That's not to say that's all that happens as though it's insignificant, but this is a very good, concise Johannine chapter because uh, John just tells this story and we, we have the details that he likes, that he felt were important that the Spirit led him to include as well. And so we're going to look at verses 13 through 41 this morning and kind of taking the last, this sermon and last week as a two-parter, last week talking about how he was transformed by the light of the world. Do you remember that in the beginning of this chapter where Jesus is talking to his disciples about how the purpose of this man's blindness from his birth was not because of some egregious sin that his parents had committed or that he himself had committed, but rather... If you look at verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And a little further down, Jesus again calls himself the light of the world. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so this man who was born blind, we don't know his name, was transformed by the light of the world. And now the rest of his story, we don't actually see Jesus. This is probably one of the longest stretches in the Gospel of John where Jesus doesn't show up until the end. It's kind of funny, right? John's been following Jesus through this whole story, and this is kind of like a break in chapter 9. After the healing, Jesus kind of fades into the background for a little bit. It kind of feels like this guy's going to be all alone on his own before the Pharisees to give an answer to this very question. What do you say about him? And it's a question that you have to answer as well. And it's an answer that you ought to have now. You might not expect to come to church and have somebody say, hey, what do you say about this Jesus guy? Because as you sit amongst each other, you might be thinking, well, we're, we're probably all in agreement in who Jesus is. But it's something that should be on our minds and our hearts that we could readily summon up in order to give an answer, as Peter says, for the hope that lies within us. Are you in John 9? Are you at verse 13? This is the most important thing we're going to do in our worship today. Because this book that you hold in your hands or see via an app on your phone is the very word of God for you today. John chapter 9, starting at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked, him, asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? 
How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. He would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, Your guilt remains. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this morning, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the spiritual truth of what your word has for us. Grant that your spirit might teach us at the place of our hearts, supersede any error or any useless thing, and establish us in the truth of what Jesus has done on our behalf at the cross. May we see with clear eyes this morning your glory, that we might bring further glory to your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen any of those YouTube videos that starts with somebody sitting in their living room, they're given a gift, they hold the gift on their lap, they open the box up, and immediately tears They pull out some kind of device, either perhaps a hearing aid of some kind or or some of these fascinating glasses that assist in correcting colorblindness. The person puts these glasses or hearing aids on and immediately tears flow even more. They realize what they've been given and all the family comes around them and hugs and weeping and laughing and It's such a great, uplifting kind of video to watch, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. Some of the things that technology can do for us. 
And that immediate change, we all feel that, right? You don't have to know the um, older gentleman in the video or the young kid, perhaps, in the video who's being assisted by this technology to even well up with tears on your own and just saying, what a transformation this child or this older person is going through because of the help of these colorblind glasses or hearing aids or, or whatever, what, what else, right? It's amazing to think the impact that correcting something that is wrong according to the created order will do. Amazing what happens when, you know, we don't think about it. You maybe even just get a little cold and you realize, man, I sure miss breathing through both of my nostrils, right? Or being able to breathe just through my nose at all. Walking around going, oh, oh, because I can't. He realized, wow, I don't think about it. What a valuable thing, breath or sight or hearing or speaking until we lose that thing. And the man that is in question in this story has never seen before. We emphasized this last week, remember? How amazing it must have been as a grown man, as an adult, as, uh, as his parents confess that he is of age to speak for himself, having gone however many years until this point, and now suddenly open his eyes up and realize everything that the world is. That transformation is incredible, and that yet the, the truth behind that transformation is even more incredible because of what it says about who God is. And that's what's important here, because the question that he is asked in one way or another multiple times in the rest of this chapter is, what do you say about him? How did he do this thing? You tell us something about Jesus. And you could tell through reading that, couldn't you? That these Pharisees, the Jews, as John calls them often, the Jewish leaders, they were not looking to be educated by this man, were they? They wanted to hear what he had to say so that they could correct him or so that they could do something with him to stop what they knew he had to say. Even so far as their position changing to a point where they say, maybe this guy wasn't even born blind. Let's just, the story needs to be that this is all a lie. That this man could see, or that, that this isn't the same man that everybody thought he was. How important your testimony about Jesus is in your life doesn't depend on how well you can deliver that message. It depends on the truth of it and your willingness to express the truth. Because that's what this man who was born blind did. He had been given a greater gift than hearing aids or colorblind correcting glasses could ever do. And it wasn't just the fact that now he could open his eyes and see. What Christ has done for this man, his action is imbued with a matter of compassion in the first place. But towards the end, even as Jesus leaves, it's just, he's not unaware of what's going on, but as we, the spotlight fixes on this man through most of the story, we see that there's a matter of dignity that is given by Christ. That Jesus has done this act of compassion in order to give this man a platform to be a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ. And he didn't even know the good news. He didn't even know Jesus' name hardly. You can see the progress of his testimony growing through this story. 
but he's not given a, a new site and then, and then a little booklet on Evangelism 101 or how to share your testimony or here's some note cards. Write down everything that just happened so that you can tell the Pharisees. He doesn't need to, does he? His life is the living proof of who Jesus is. Jesus is not like just another doctor or another teacher. He is one who can give sight and not only give sight, but give sight to someone who was born blind. This morning, I think something we need to hear from this passage is that seeing Christ necessarily leads to bold witness and gospel proclamation. Seeing Christ leads to bold witness and gospel proclamation. And you might be thinking, because I know if I was on the other side of the pink chairs, I might be thinking this too about this guy that's preaching. You said bold witness and gospel proclamation. Are you just trying to make a longer, very Christianese kind of sounding sentence? But these are two things, are they not? Your witness and the proclamation of the gospel are not all necessarily the exact same thing. Your testimony is about what Christ did in your life. And that can include the gospel, but, but the presentation of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, is one that calls other people to respond. And that is what Christ has enabled and called this man to. Because there's a matter not only of physical blindness from birth that's going on, but if you go to the end of our passage, I know I said we were going to leave Jesus in the shadows for a little while, but... If you go all the way down to verse 39, look at this with me again. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Now, all you Bible study people are thinking, hold on a second. He didn't come for judgment. We saw this already in the Gospel of John, right? Jesus is contradicting himself. And this is exactly what the Pharisees would love to have a copy of the Gospel of John while this is happening, right? You're like, no, no, hold on. Go back here, and you haven't come to judge the world or condemn it, but to save it. So what are you talking about here? Your message is getting confused. There is a side effect to what Jesus has come to do. He has come to give sight to the blind, right? He's come to give life to us. But at the same time, those who do not receive light and life only find judgment. That is not God's active purpose in sending Christ in the first place. His first primary action was that the judgment that I deserve should fall on Christ at the cross and that the intended result should be that I would repent and believe and trust that work on my behalf. But what of those who do not? Judgment comes. So let's read the rest of the passage here. 39. Judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees, of course, respond to this and say, well, are we blind? Is that what you're saying about us? Because obviously this man, you're not going to say he's blind. You've healed him. But we know you're talking spiritually here. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. That is to say that if there was not a revelation of what God has said to you, then there would be something for you to stand on about your blindness. But rather, your guilt remains because you think you see when you really don't. You formed a God in your own image and a rules, a, rule, a set of rules in your own making and therefore have revealed that your guilt remains and your blindness runs deeper than you could see. Seeing Christ leads to bold witness and gospel proclamation because that is the natural overflow. It cannot lead to man-made religious systems. 
and it certainly cannot lead to abuse of power that we see in this story or to the matter of fear of man. Christ comes to give sight to blind eyes so that they can see the glory of who he is, and then that would be revealed in bold proclamation and in trust in him, even despite opposition. Because that's what this man faces. This is this man, I mean, it's, it's even arguable whether to say he's actually a Christian at this point because he doesn't understand who Christ is. All you can say is, like, well, he's a prophet. He's in the beginning stages of understanding God. And yet he's put in a place that, I mean, literally none of us have ever been before. You haven't stood before the Sanhedrin <laughs> in Jesus' day to give an answer about who Jesus is, have you? And even those of us who have been walking with Christ for a while and think that we know a thing or two would probably be shaking in our boots to be in his position, would we not? I know I would. What, what am I going to mess up? How am I going to argue Christ from the... T that doesn't happen at all. And it's by God's design. This man's blindness or ailment became an expression of God's divine glory in his life and therefore also revealed the judgment that is, is on the world now. Those that will not see and yet claim to think that they see. So this morning, do you see Christ? And I don't mean, is he standing up here somewhere? I mean that with spiritual eyes, that you sense a deeper reality of who Christ is beyond a historical figure, beyond a very good teacher, beyond a miracle worker. Do you see him as the Lord of all and King of kings? Well, there are two camps that are revealed in this passage, obviously. There are those who receive judgment and those that receive salvation. There are those who see and those who think they see. Both camps start out blind. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and are lost in that sin. That sin is inherited in our lives. We've inherited it from our forefather, Adam, when he fell in the garden. But sin is not just inherited because then we could say, well, this isn't fair, Lord. My sin's just inherited. You never gave me a chance. Put me in the Garden of Eden. Put me up against the snake. Let me see if I obey God. Guess what? I don't think any of us would. But our sin, our blindness is not only inherited, but it is also willful. And that's something we see with the Pharisees here. There's a willful blindness. Why? Because they don't want to come to the truth? Because they don't want to face the facts? No, because the truth and the facts require transformation, and they like their lives the way that they are. Do you like your life? Did you like your life before you knew Christ? Was that something that was hard for you to let go of in recognizing that Jesus was now going to be in charge of your life and not just a part of it? the blind who see and the blind who think they see. The man born blind has the right proclamation. He is a prophet. This is a good starting point. But the Pharisees can't accept that he would be more important than Moses. You see that in verse 28 here of chapter 9. We know that God spoke to Moses. Later on they say, we are Moses' disciples. Moses, Moses, Moses. Nobody's going to be more important than Moses. One of the most important things that Moses said was that God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and to him you will listen. And even though he says it's a prophet like me, he's also giving deference. He's saying, you're not going to listen to me primarily in that day, but in that day when the true prophet comes, the one who truly comes from God. Remember, prophet doesn't just mean somebody who can say, I can tell you your future. It is one who foretells the word of God. 
And primarily in this context, the word prophet is being used to describe origin. You remember, they, they, as they're questioning him, the Pharisees say, we don't even know where this man's from. You can say he's a prophet. We can't tell he's from God. So in this conversation, the title prophet has to do with where he comes from, which reveals to us why John includes this story. Because you remember in the very beginning of the Gospel of John that John sets up that his purpose is for us to see that Jesus was not just another guy who came out of Nazareth, but that he's the very Son of God come from God the Father. The blind man begins to see. The Pharisees can't see him as more important than Moses. And then the parents of the blind man, what, what impression did you get of those guys? The mom and dad are brought forward. Again, think back to that YouTube video you saw of the mom and dad giving the colorblind correcting glasses or giving the hearing aid to their kid. How did the parents respond? Well, I'm glad we got that situated. What's next? No, they were weeping with the child. They were loving the, the transformation, the quality of life that happened there, right? They were just, there was no words to describe it. And yet these parents, when placed before the Pharisees, can't come up with anything to say except for you should ask him Jesus's message to those who claim to see and yet will reject Christ is that they will remain blind whether they are those who are actively working out their own agenda or those who are actively trying to keep their status because you remember the reason the parents were afraid to talk about what happened to their son is because they knew that the Pharisees had already said that if anyone says that Jesus is the Christ, we're going to kick them out of the synagogue. And guess what? There weren't 50 synagogues in their towns. You know, there wasn't the first united synagogue of, no, there's, there's a synagogue and that's it. And that is your life. I, I hate to say it, but I mean, it's not like church today where you get to check in on Sunday morning and then check out. The synagogue was your life. And so they were going to miss out, not only socially, but they were going to miss out before God in their eyes. That professing Christ, as professing Jesus as the Christ, would actually do the opposite in their minds in taking them further away from God because of what these religious leaders had to say. Their blindness, and more importantly, clinging to their blindness, would result in fear of others and legalism, and ultimately distance from the true God. John 1, 5, as we mentioned already, the beginning of John, again, listen to this. Jesus comes, John tells us, as the light of the world. So many times, light is a huge theme in this gospel. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, John tells us that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've seen that a lot, haven't we, in the way Jesus interacts with his opponents? But I think that there's something special about the way that they fight back in John chapter 9. And I think it has to do with the fact that they don't perceive that Jesus is present and active in that moment. Their idea is, hey, he's away. Let's get this guy. He's born blind. He thinks he is. I think, I think he's got his story, but we've got alternative facts that we can insert in and make our own narrative fit into his life so that people will stop following this Jesus guy. They were clinging to their blindness. They were clinging to legalism and drawing further and further away from the true Messiah all along. They were attempting in their darkness to overcome the light. 
But John's already told us. He spoiled the ending in chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Implication 2, the darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. So as we think about our own blindness that we come from and, and the, the ways that that blindness is shown, it might be in a matter of fear of other people. You know, what's the biggest reason we don't share the gospel with people? We are afraid, right? We're afraid that we don't know enough and that in our not knowing enough or that in our presentation or whatever about us that we think is insufficient, the fear is that the person that we speak to will react in a way that is uncomfortable for us. Right? That's got to be at the top of the list. It's the top of my list. Clinging to blindness results in the fear of others. Uh, like these parents are saying, oh my goodness, the Pharisees are going to kick us out. But it can also result in legalism. Look at their first complaint. Why is it that some of the Pharisees didn't like Jesus' healing? It happened on the Sabbath. The day you're not supposed to do anything. The day of rest. Boy, Pharisees, I don't know why this is still such an issue for y'all because Jesus has dealt with the Sabbath already, right? In John 5, he healed a man who was paralyzed on the Sabbath. The reason that they can't accept this is because in accepting his healing, his working on the Sabbath, they can't just say, well, he's like a different kind of prophet. He may not fit into our scheme of things, but that's okay because he's like us still. In accepting his work on the Sabbath, they're not just accepting that he's different. They're accepting that he's God. Do you understand that? <laughs> they would be saying, all right, if it's okay to work on the Sabbath, who is allowed to work on the Sabbath? Only the person who instituted the Sabbath. Of course, they had all their own ways of calling people out for breaking the Sabbath that were not biblical, right? So one of the things that we see in this passage back to what we read last week, was the means that Jesus used to heal this man. Again, we pointed out last week, could Jesus not have just said, you're not blind anymore? Could he have done that? Sure. But instead, he spits in the dirt, picks it up with his hands, makes mud, rubs it on his eyes, on the, the guy's eyes, sends him to the pool called Scent to wash, and then he's healed. And we talked last week, that's really weird. Why does he want to do it that way? Why doesn't he just pronounce the man healed? Why doesn't he wave his hand and do something different? We talked last week about how this is Jesus making a clear reference to the way God created man. He breathed the breath of life into the dust. And Jesus making mud is even making a divine statement about himself on the Sabbath. But on top of that, he's saying something about he, again, he's saying something about himself as the Son of God in that he is working on the Sabbath. Because when Jesus heals this man, and this man is brought before the Pharisees, and they ask him, how did he give you your sight back? How did he fix everything? The man doesn't mention that Jesus made mud with his hands and put it on his eyes, right? He leaves that part out. And it may, in fact, be because some of the man-made laws about the Sabbath included don't need dough. Not that you don't need dough. Don't K-N-E-A-D dough, right? Don't need it. And don't anoint eyes on the Sabbath. So even though he was using mud to anoint the eyes of this man, 
it's very possible that the man born blind was thinking, I'm going to leave that detail out for a second because they're missing the point if they get wrapped up in that. But of course, John includes this in here so that we can see how closely these teachers are clinging to their own blindness, unwilling to see anything that would go against their system of life. And that that further expresses itself in the way they abuse power. So the threat again was, if you confess Jesus is the Christ, we're going to kick you out of church. But church again was not just one of the options down the street. We're kicking you out of life if you do this. This is clearly against God's plan. God is using Christ, making the work of Christ in the world draw people to him. And the works of darkness are trying to push people out, away from him. Do you see this in the world today? Do you see people trying to separate, to use an important word, the idea of who Jesus is from the rest of life? And yet the gospel calls us not to say, Give your Sunday morning, and maybe your afternoon if you're a really holy person. No, rather, give your life to Christ. Christ is your life, Paul tells us in Colossians. But these men are abusing their power. They're using excommunication, which could be a necessary means of righteousness. You know, church discipline, still in the New Testament, Paul tells us, hey, you can, and, and perhaps should in some cases, excommunicate people from the fellowship, he says, not so that they feel terrible about themselves, but so that they might repent. This is part of what church membership does. Church membership, in part, is something that we grant to somebody that, it's, that we can tell is walking with Christ, is living the Christian life. This is repenting of sin and trusting in him. And part of the benefit that comes to the believer then is that if I'm ever not doing that, if I'm ever living in willful sin then people at my church might say, hey, look, you're, you're living contrary to what God's word says. And not that we're going to kick you out and not let you come to church anymore, but we might have to take that title of membership away if your life doesn't seem to match up. See, that's, that's a good plan that God has for his people so that they might repent. But the workers of darkness, those who are blinded by their darkness and their sin, would use God's means to defend their own corrupt power, to abuse their power, that is. And the parents, their clinging to blindness is revealed in their cardboard convictions here. It's, again, think about these parents in light of the healing of their son. Should they not be next in line to say, I'll tell you who he is, I'll tell you this is my son, I'll tell you he was born blind, and I don't know much about this Jesus guy, but he did it. They're so afraid of what other people will do to them that they blind themselves to the truth. Jesus said in his judgment that those who think they see will be made blind. The blind become more blind because of their clinging to it. Regardless of what happens socially, what happens theologically for our own man-made terms of how to relate to God, we cannot budge on what truth is. We have to stand firm on it because of what Christ has done for us. That the very message that we have of the cross is the ultimate reason for us to hold fast to what Jesus has said. 
so that we are like this man born blind. And many times they say, boy, I don't get the whole excommunication thing, the church discipline thing. I don't get why we baptize people. I don't get a lot of these things. But what I do know is that I used to be blind. I used to be dead and lost and guilty of sin. But now I see. That's the starting point of what I have to say about Jesus. Yet we also need to be careful in light of this passage that we don't allow our past blindness either to reveal itself in our legalism or in our distance from Christ, from the people of Christ, or our fear of others. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers. Important that he says brothers. He's writing to the church. Lest there be in any of you, that is brothers, that the church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We will, as, as a church, as, as elders, and this isn't, this isn't a deal breaker. If you disagree with us on this doctrine, that's fine. You're more, more than welcome to worship with us. But we believe that what God's word shows us is that once somebody is given eternal life, that eternal life cannot be taken away. We come to passages like Hebrews 3.12 and say, well, how is it that you could fall away from the living God? I think this, the author is using human terms to express what happens with what John says in 1 John. He says that many of them went out from us because they were not of us. There's a reason that we need to watch our lives very carefully because old blindness can come right back up. And it can reveal in us an evil, unbelieving heart. It could lead us to falling away from the living God. Just starting to say, well, you know, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I need to be a part of that Bible study. I think I can probably just ignore that text message that I got from my believing friend. I think I can probably skip reading my Bible today. I, I don't really need to talk to God. I don't really need him. And gradually, that blindness leads us further and further away. We who see may still be in danger of this. J.C. Ryle, in describing the challenge that we see in this man's life, is the matter of whether we would be willing to follow the light if set before us. It's not to say that none of us ever do this if we're truly in Christ, but that when light is revealed, when, when Jesus shows up and takes my hands off my eyes and says, hey, here I am. His spirit speaks to our hearts to remind us that he is very much present with us. How do we respond? Do we force our hands back over our eyes? Or do you say, okay, Lord, you got me. What's next? And what's next is always a return to the cross. One of my favorite quotes from an old dead guy from the 1800s. is Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. The Christian life is not one of self-wallowing over our sins, even though we are called to examine ourselves and to take care, again, as Hebrews tells us, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away. We do need to take care, but the way we take care in that is we say, Lord, I'm weak, but you're strong. You're strong. You're strong. I'm looking at Christ. I'm not looking at myself. I'm turning my eyes away from my sin, away from my blindness, and turning to him. Because Christ, who was crucified and raised, meets us in the trial and encourages us in proclaiming truth and walking in truth as well. The man's understanding of Christ grew throughout this. Even though it seems that Jesus was far, he was not far from him. 
Verse 25, the man says, all I know is that I used to be blind and now I can see. In verse 27, as they ask him yet again, in the second instance of interrogating him, he says what is kind of natural at this point. He's like, why do you keep asking me about Jesus unless you actually wanted to become his disciple? He's being very sarcastic here, but there's some truth behind that. What, what other reason would there be other than you want to become his disciple or you just want to get as far away as possible from him? This man is left in amazement, not at this point over what has happened to him, though it was amazing, but in verse 30, he's amazed at what they've said. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone worships him and does his will, God does listen to them. I mean, this man who knows so little theologically and scholastically is speaking to the brilliance of the religious leaders of the day with simple common sense, simple gospel truth that is growing up in this man. And they reject it. But he's set up in this transformation. He is set up for justification by faith. He's set up to receive that good news. When Jesus does show up in the end here, look at verse 35. He says, do you believe in the son of man? That's a gospel question because that's what it comes down to. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And what's his answer? His answer isn't like, well, what do you mean by Son of Man? Or, or what's he going to do for me? His, his answer is, who is he? Who's the Son of Man? I'm ready to believe anything you have to say. And the good news gets better for him because his answer is, you've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. The Son of Man is not far from his people. He's near to us. He drew near to us at the cross. And though he left and ascended to his father, he said, it's actually better for me to go because then I'll send my spirit to you, to live inside of you, to be closer to you than even if Jesus was sitting in a pink chair next to you. Christ's revelation to that man was then met with immediate worship. He couldn't deny who was standing right in front of him. No blindness that he experienced before would stop him from seeing that this man who he thought was simply a prophet is none other than God himself. He said, Lord, I believed, in verse 38, and he worshipped him. Christ was the reward of this man's unjust trial and excommunication. He said, remember, he was cast out. Well, what is this life's man? We might say, I'm really worried about this guy. He's been cast out socially and theologically, and, and he used to be a beggar. I mean, is he going to go back to begging? And, no, I don't think this man's worried about his future at all. Would you be if you just received sight? Would you have any doubt about God's provision for you? If one day, after years of being blind, you suddenly opened your eyes and you could see? Would you, when Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm the son of man, would you be like, well, why'd you give me this sight for? What'd you do that for? I was doing pretty well begging, and now I've got to talk to the Sanhedrin. I've got to defend this faith that I don't even... No, of course not. Gratitude and worship and joy engulfed everything in his life. Seeing Christ doesn't result in a rigorous do-or-die legalism. I've got to hold my view of Sabbath. I've got to hold my view of what Sunday morning looks like. Or I've got to hold of my life in, my, in, in itself. 
It doesn't result in that. It doesn't result in fear of other people or brash denouncing of others and putting ourselves on a pedestal. But rather, seeing Christ and truly seeing him results in a wholehearted, unrestricted joy and confession of who he is as the Savior. That unrestricted joy, I don't mean that the way you come into church joyfully is skipping and dancing and grinning ear to ear all the time, because joy supersedes your circumstances. Joy is something you are given regardless of whether you're happy or not. Joy is that thing you fall back on when you recognize, I used to be blind and now I see. That when life hits you with the hardest thing, it's never going to hit you harder than what Christ hit you with. Sight, life, eternal life. So wholehearted, unrestricted joy, confession of the Savior, leaving all things behind for the sweetness of walking with him and working alongside him. Because you remember that what the disciples were told in response to their question regarding what, what, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents who sinned? Jesus says, it wasn't either, but that the glory of God might be displayed in him. Verse four, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Comes back to this very thing that this man, who wasn't pronounced a disciple, an apostle, a bishop, a pastor, but he immediately entered into the work of the one who saved him and made him new. And so it is with all of the children of God. We don't go back to begging. We don't say, well, I can see now. It's going to make the whole begging thing a little awkward. But I don't have a job. I don't have anything else for land. No. Does Christ not care for his people? Does he not give you everything you need day by day? And is it not true that when we complain and when we see our lack, that those things that we wish we had aren't always as necessary as we thought they were? When this man is given sight, he doesn't skip off into the sunset dreaming of becoming some great anything for that matter. He finds Christ, and he finds all he needs in him. He shows this progressive boldness and growing sight. His eyes are being opened continually as well. Your salvation doesn't just happen in one moment and then it's done. Your salvation is worked out. And your salvation and the working out of it, you don't get to the more spiritual, lofty things. You go deeper into the salvation that has already happened in your life. You go deeper into the truth of the sight that you have deeper into your relationship with Christ, deeper into thinking on the cross and the resurrection. And that from that, we too enter into the work that Christ is doing. Sometimes whether we like it or not. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15 that we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing as well. To one a pleasing aroma to one that the, the person that, that God is working on and is, is drawing to himself. And then you get to be the one who says, let me tell you about who Jesus is. And let me not only share my testimony, but proclaim the good news, what you need to do to those that would hear and accept we're the aroma of life. But to those that would say, I don't want anything to do with that. We're the aroma of death. We're stinky. That doesn't stop us from, the responsibility that we have to proclaim the gospel, though. This, blind, this man born blind and now given sight was stinky before the Pharisees. They didn't want anything to do with him. But his testimony was in obedience to what God has done in his life. 
So are you doing the work that he has for you? Do you recognize that the reason that God has you on this earth right now is to bring him glory, to testify to who he is, and to proclaim the gospel that you've received? And the last thing, will you battle the temptations of your former spiritual blindness? Those temptations to impress other people, those temptations to maintain your status, those temptations to keep your own control. Will you relinquish it, relinquish it to the one who's given you life and who has all control? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him by his word. Lord, we don't always taste the sweetness of that because our former blindnesses and temptations arise around us. Yet, Lord, you have designed for us to run back to you day and day and day again. In every instance, Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the work of Christ in giving us sight. And we pray, Lord, that if anyone in here doesn't have that sight, that you would grant that to them. That there would be an undeniable discipleship that would come after. They couldn't but speak of what they've seen and heard, as the apostles did in the book of Acts. Lord, give us boldness, bold testimony, and clear gospel proclamation so that you might receive the glory that you deserve and that men and women, boys and girls, would come to find sight and life in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.